John Calvin once wrote to the Catholic Bishop of Carpentras, Jacopo Sotolito, in this book right here. I'd recommend it to you. It's a... Uh, it's called a Reformation Debate. It's primary sources. Um, it's published by Baker Academic. It's, it's a letters back and forth between two gentlemen, John Calvin and Jacopo Sodolito. Uh, so Bishop Sodolito, he was uh, writing to uh, the Genevans. And, and as he was doing this, he was appealing to the Genevans to come back to the Catholic Church. That's what he was doing. And John Calvin... He, uh, he wrote back a very pointed response. I'm talking super pointed. Y you might be under the impression that Facebook debates between church members started somewhere around the year 2010, 2008, something like that. If you're a student of church history, you will know this. Facebook debates today ain't got nothing on the debates of the past. I'm talking, they were far more intelligent, they were far more pointed, they were far more aggressive. They just lacked the um, logical fallacies that exist today in most <laughs> debates found on Facebook. But John Calvin, in, in his response to Sotoletto, he says this, he says, your zeal for heavenly life is a zeal which keeps a man entirely devoted to himself and does not, even by one expression, arouse him to sanctify the name of God. I'll read that one more time. He says, your zeal for heavenly life, you got a zeal for heaven, but your zeal for heavenly life is a zeal which keeps a man entirely devoted to himself. His glory, his work, his life, his paying the bills, life as normal, just have a zeal for heaven. That's what he's fighting against. And does not, even by one expression, Arouse him to sanctify the name of God. Got a zeal for heaven, but a zeal in no way, shape, or form that does not honor, love, or worship the Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin, in, in saying this, he was criticizing the, the man-centric work-centric, heartless, joyless, worshipless, thankless religion that existed among self-professing Christians in 1539. The reality, the reality is that such an attitude of man-centric, work-centric, Heartless, joyless, worshipless, thankless religion seems to be, when you look around, what constitutes a lot of what people would call faith today. And as we, who are Protestant, we are passionate about fighting for the doctrine of saved by grace alone through faith alone. This is a doctrine that many of us in this church would die for by faith alone. No works, no penance, no, no ch not church attendance, not voting the right way, not giving money, not doing any sort of good deed to be made right with God. You can't stop drinking and stop smoking and, and, and quit porn and, and all. That, that is not how you're made right with God. Amen, church. It's a good, a good spot for an amen. That's not how we're made right with God. 
We are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen. But there seems to be an issue. When I, when I look around, the, the, uh, even among evangelicals today, that in this fight for faith, by being saved by grace alone through faith alone, there seems, there seems to be a problem here that faith has been emptied of all of its meaning. Faith has been emptied of all of its, all of its meaning. So much that, that faith is often described as simple mental assent to some facts. Just simple mental assent. I acknowledge a few facts and th- that is faith. Th- that constitutes enough to save me. The reality is, I've looked back through Luke as I, as I looked at this passage that we're in today. Luke 17, 11 through 19. You can turn there. Look back through Luke and I've noticed something that Luke has a lot to say about faith. We don't get to define faith on our own terms. There are many times that Jesus commends faith. Jesus describes faith. Jesus defines faith. Jesus tells us how we can be saved and made right with God. Today we are going to look at biblical saving faith. There's four attributes I want to look at of of biblical saving faith. How does Jesus constitute faith? What is the type of faith that Jesus commends? That's what I want to look at this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you're, uh, you don't even know what I mean by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, dear friend, you came on the right morning. If there's any questions that you have at the end of my sermon, I'll be down front, but quite honestly, anybody in this church could answer any, any question that you may have. My main point this morning is this. The only type of saving faith that Christ commends is is a faith that is repentant, worshipful, humble, and thankful. The only type of saving faith that Christ commends is a faith that is repentant, worshipful, humble, and thankful. Please follow along as I read in Luke 17, 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem... He was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And they went, and as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. As we we begin to study this passage of scripture, I'd like to set up the scene first for you. I I want to tell you where we're going and why I'm focusing on saving faith. Because you're reading this and it seems to be about thankfulness, and it is. But but I, I I think the key to interpreting this passage, Luke 11, Luke 17, 11 through 19, starts by looking at the very last verse in Luke 19. As we look at the as we look at verse 19, Jesus responds at the very end of this story to this, this man who has fallen at his feet uh, at Jesus' feet, and he says, Rise and go your way, your faith has saved you. Now, 
most of your Bibles, anybody who's got the ESV in here, who's got NASB, I'm not seeing any hands. I'm just trying to get some involvement here. Okay, there we go. Okay, there we go. Now we're feeling it. In the NASB and in the ESV, it says your faith has what? Made you well? Faith is something to that extent. And then at the very bottom, it probably has in, in italics or a little subnote. At the very bottom, it says what? Your faith has saved you. Well, this, this, this Greek word here is sesokin. Sesokin. It is, a, uh, it is the, the aorist indicative of sozo. I'm sorry, it is the perfect indicative of, of, of sozo. And uh, sozo is the word to save. To save. Literally in the Greek, this word means to save. So Jesus is pointing here that your faith has saved you. He's commending his faith here from the very start. His, your faith has saved you. What is it about this? I want, what I want to ask as I look at this passage and I read that, and what is it about this man's faith that Jesus points to that has salvific ramifications? You follow me? What is it about this faith that is salvific, that saves? And, and, and I want to say also, before we really get started, and that's a long intro, I'm sorry. I want to first note that that faith is not the ground of your salvation. It's the means of your salvation. But your salvation is grounded in the grace of God alone. You don't somehow conjure up enough faith or conjure up enough belief or conjure up enough repentance to be made right with God. Amen. Your salvation is a gift of God alone. Your salvation is a work of God alone. Your salvation was God's idea, not your idea. Your salvation from start to finish is God's grace. God's grace. Faith is the means by which he uses to save you. So when he says your faith is saved, this doesn't point any to, to any sort of work that, that this man did or any work that we can do to be made right with God. Faith is a natural response of regeneration by the work of the Spirit that we are saved. So in, in verse 11... As we're setting up this story, as we're kind of setting up the background here, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And we know that as he's, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he's going for one purpose. And that purpose is to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for his people. Why? Why? Because, because his people are sinful. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. Why? Because God is holy. God is perfectly holy, not an ounce of sin in him. We can't even comprehend how holy God is. God is not like us. God is not like you. Basically, everyone in this room, we sit here and we probably think we're basically good people. We're not. I'm not. I'm here to tell you the guy in the pulpit, I'm not. I'm probably the worst in this room. All right? If it wasn't for God's grace, it'd be even worse. All right? We are, we are morally bankrupt, evil, wretched people apart from God's grace who cannot, in and of ourselves, do anything to fix that. And because we've sinned against the holy God, we deserve the wrath of God. We deserve His eternal wrath forever and ever and ever and never in hell. There's nothing we can do about it. So Christ comes. Christ puts on flesh, he leaves the throne of heaven and he comes down, puts on flesh, dwells among us. He is perfect. He fulfills every righteous rule and law and decree in this book, in his life. He does all of it. Perfect. Therefore, he comes to offer himself as a sacrifice 
for us. He comes to lay down his life to die, to take on the wrath of God on the cross for us, in which he gives up his life, he dies, he's put in the grave, and on the third day, he, he rises again. He rises from the grave. He is living, and he ascended to heaven, where he rules, and he reigns, and right now, church, we wait for his return. That is the gospel. Jesus was heading there. Jesus was heading there. He was heading to lay down his life on the cross. And he was taking a route, passing along Samaria and Galilee. As is, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that Samar Samaritans and, and Galileans didn't like each other. Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other because S Samaritans were... were uh, they were Jews that intermarried with Gentiles and created um, sort of a, a mixed offspring. And so there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of animosity between Jews and, and Samaritans. And so there's, there's kind of that social aspect at play here. And we see in, in verse 12, and Jesus, he, enter, he enters a village and, and he was met by 10 lepers. He was met by 10 lepers. And these lepers, they, they stood at a distance. Why? Because you're, you might remember, I think it's been a year, maybe a year and a half ago, uh, I preached a sermon on leprosy. I think I might have even preached several sermons on leprosy at this point. I can't remember. But if you remember, you can go back and look it up. I won't do a full detailed uh, education on leprosy right now. Leprosy was a very bad illness. They required a lot of the Jews when they had leprosy. They had to basically be expelled from their homes, expelled from their families. They went and lived alone. They, they were constantly marked by being um, unclean. They had, any time they would be around people, they would have to announce that they were unclean. This had family ramifications. It had social ramifications. It had provision ramifications. It had religious ramifications. They could not go and make sacrifices at the temple or worship with the people of God. The, these guys were, were destitute. It was an absolutely horrible disease with no cure. And, and, and one of the, and like you, you talk about all the things that, that in Leviticus that, that it talks about the most. I mean, leprosy and dealing with leprosy is one of the most talked about items in Leviticus, God's law. Leviticus 13 and 14, all of the different rules and regulations that had to happen if you had leprosy. And here, these people are standing far off. They're obeying. We're not getting close to anybody. They, nobody wanted them close. They didn't need to be close. The law said they could not be close. They stood at a distance, all right? And they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. There wasn't a pill they could take. They couldn't go to the hospital. There, only, there, there was no cure. But they had heard about this miracle worker, Jesus, who had been traveling around and, and, and healing the lame, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. We hear about Jesus. He's coming. He's in our town. There he is. We see him from a distance. We are far off from him because we need to be. All our only hope is together as a chorus, 10 of us, we say, Jesus, have, have mercy on us. It's their only hope. That was it. What does Jesus do? Jesus, he, he, he saw them and he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Again, you go to Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14. That's in order for them to be pronounced clean, for them to, to go back and to, to be with their family, to be with their friends, to worship at the temple, they had to be pronounced clean by the priest. And so with, with the priest, they would, they would gaze upon this person, and the priest could not heal them. The priest could only look at them and say, yeah, you appear to be clean according to the word of God. And there would be an eight-day ceremonial process of, of cleanliness in which before they would go back to be with their families. The priest could only identify when someone could be clean. The priest could never actually heal someone. And so in this, Jesus, he says, go show yourself to the priest. He's, he's obeying the law. He's fulfilling the law. He's encouraging them to follow the law. Go to Leviticus 13, 14. Go show yourself to the priest. That's what they did. And as they went, what happened? They were clean. 
They were clean. That's kind of the background. All 10 of them, all 10 of them were clean. And then we, go to, we get to verse 15. And this is where I want to camp out for the rest of our time together. Four attributes, if you've got your notes, four attributes of saving faith. So we're going to look at, we're going to look at this man that Jesus commended here. Luke chapter 17, verse 15. Then one of them, not two, not half, not nine, not all of them, only one, one of them, one of them who had been healed of this incredibly awful disease with gigantic ramifications, Christ has given them their life back. He's given them their livelihood back. He's given them their religion back. He's given them everything back. Everything has been restored to them because at this very moment. It's amazing. But then one of them, just one, when he saw that he was healed, he turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And this was a Samaritan, to which Jesus goes on to commend this faith. Four attributes of the faith that Jesus commends. Four attributes of a faith that saves. First, repentance. First, repentance. What do you see? He, he, he turns back. He turns back here. They're all going. And there's this point in which this man who has been cleansed of leprosy, his life has been changed. He doesn't just go on. He doesn't just keep walking. He doesn't just live life as normal. He does not go on his way. His life is changed forever by this man. So what does he do? He turns back. He turns back towards Jesus. That is what faith does. He turns his back to where he was going and he simultaneously turns toward Christ. That is what I mean when I say repentance. It's not that he started doing a bunch of good works. It's that he turned to Christ. He longed for Christ. He longed for him. Why? Because he saw that being with Jesus was way better than whatever was about to happen next in his life. You know, you know what's better than, than going to Gerizim and, and seeing the Samaritan priest there or going down, to the, going down to the temple in Jerusalem? At that moment, you know what was better? Turning to Christ, being with Christ. You know what's better than freedom, financial freedom? Being with your family, being with your friends, having your livelihood, being with Christ. He valued being with Christ. He turns to him. He, he turns his back to where he was and he turns back to Christ. And this is what repentance and turning to Christ looks like. Seeing Jesus as a greater treasure than anything else. Anything. And you know what, friends? This is normal. This isn't a one-off in Luke. We're going to look at some... Consider, consider Luke 5, 1 through 11. I know it's been a few years, but Luke 5, 1 through 11, and we see that Jesus, he, he brings this miraculous catch for his disciples who've been fishing all night. They've given their lives to being fishermen. And so they fish and fish and fish and fish all night. They caught nothing. It was a bad business day. Did not go the way that they wanted, but all of a sudden Jesus is on the shore. And, and Jesus being a carpenter, not a fisherman, he's not an expert in fishermen. He just goes, he, he shouts out from the shore, hey, you should try some. Why don't you go and toss the nets to the to, toss the nets to the other side of the boat? To which these professional fishermen are like, this guy's crazy. But they oblige because he's a rabbi. And so he tosses the they, they toss and they bring in the largest catch they've ever seen. At that moment, they get a glimpse of the glory of Christ and they see they, and their lives are changed forever. And what do they do? They leave the boats, drop the nets, and follow Jesus because following Jesus is better than anything else in life. 
You continue on in Luke 5, we see the same thing happen. We see Levi the tax collector, and if we know anything about tax collectors, we know this. We've talked about it. It's just a review. Tax collectors were hated by the Jews. Why? Because they sided with Rome. The Jews did not like being occupied by Rome, and so, uh, in fact, they hated it. And so these tax collectors were working on behalf of Rome, and they were defrauding the Jews of their money while working for their enemy. They were hated. And the reality is tax collectors, they were incredibly sinful, dishonest people. They, they weren't good people. But, but at that moment, Jesus, he meets this tax collector named Levi in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his struggle, and he, call, he calls Levi to follow him. And in that moment, miraculously, Levi leaves the money, leaves the tax booth to follow Christ. Why? Because following Christ in that moment, turning from that life and turning to Christ to follow Christ was better than anything that money had to offer. You see, this is, this is what faith looks like. We turn from a life of sin, self-sufficiency, and apathy towards God, and we turn to Christ. That is an attribute of faith. Friends, a question for consideration this morning. Is there anything in your life right now that you desire more than Christ? Is there? Well, I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would reveal Christ in all his glory and beauty to you in the scriptures and that everything else would be valued in its proper proportion is far less valuable than Christ. That you would see Christ for who he is and to treasure him above all else. Point number two, second attribute of saving faith is worship. Is worship. What does faith look like? It's, it's, a, it's a heart posture of worship. How do we see this? We see this as, as this, this man, he praises God with a, with a loud voice. When he gets a glimpse of who Jesus is and what he has done for him, he cannot help but worship. That's his response. Worship. This isn't just an inward expression. It's not just an inward expression, but a loud, audible expression. If you look up the Greek, you will read this. Megales phones. Megales phones. What's that sound like? A megaphone, a megaphone. Here he is. He is praising God like with a mega voice, a megaphone. It's like, you know, you're like going to go to a Georgia game and you see the cheerleaders with a megaphone. They're, they're like, yeah, let's go dog. This is far better than go dogs. This is praise God because I have been changed. And here's the reality. Our, orthod our orthopraxy, the way that we respond is always a result of our orthodoxy, what we believe. Always. We always behave according to what we believe. And at that very moment, the man saw Christ for who he was, and he lived it. He lived it. This is what a Christian is. This is what a Christian is. We've been saved from the wrath of God, so we tell our neighbors about Christ. We've been sanctified, so we sing like it. We sing like it. We don't just stand here, you know, I don't like this song. Song's too slow, song's too soft, song's not my style, song's this, blah, 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 blah. I want drums, I want electric guitar, I don't want drums, I don't want electric guitar. Bro, you've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Sing like it. Sing like it. The word calls us to sing. I mean, our biggest problem has been solved in Christ through no work of our own. Church, may we flip and sing like it. May we, may we, may we tell our neighbors that like, our, we tell our neighbors like if, if our stubbed toe doesn't hurt anymore. You know? My dog's out of the vet. Praise God. Bro, your sin has been paid for, Christian. Your sin has been paid for. It should result in a megaphone-type worship. And this is exactly what we see in Luke. I mean, in Luke 5, 17 through 26, Jesus heals the paralytic. 
paralytic. Remember this guy? He was put down through the roof. He was put down through the roof with his friends, and, and, and he, he's laid in front of Jesus, and Jesus saves this man from, from his... He doesn't, just, he doesn't just heal him from, his, from, his para, uh, from being paralyzed. He saves the man from his sin. And what happens? Immediately, this man rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. How did Luke know? Why did he write it? Because everyone heard him. We go to Luke 5, 27-32. Again, Jesus saves Levi the tax collector. How does Levi respond? Levi throws a dinner party for all of his tax collecting friends so that why? They can hear about Jesus. They can meet Jesus. i got to tell them. We, we go to Luke 6, 11-17. Jesus heals the widow's son. What happens? They go and they tell everybody. Luke 8, 26 through 29, Jesus heals the demoniac garrison. What's Jesus say? Jesus says, return, uh, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Luke 13, 10 through 17, Jesus heals a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And, and as he laid hands on her, she immediately she was made straight. And what did she do? She glorified God. She worshipped. She worshipped. A question for consideration, friend, this morning. Is it like pulling teeth to get you to talk about Jesus to your friends and your neighbors? Is it incredibly painful to come to church and sing out loud to the Lord? I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would reveal Christ and all of his glory and beauty to you in the scriptures and that you would see just how worthy Christ is to be exalted above all else. That as you gaze upon Christ in the scriptures and all of his glory and all of his beauty, that you would respond in megalophonus, megaphone, mega worship, audible worship, passionate worship, authentic worship, for he is worthy. That is faith. That is faith. The third, the third attribute of, of faith that Jesus commands of saving faith is one of humility. One of humility before God. Not just humility before man. Of course that comes. I'm talking about a humility before God. It's one that sees our rightful place between us and God. That, that he is king, that we are not. He is Lord, that we are not. That he is able to save, that we are not. In fact, that we look at Jesus who is holy, 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 and we recognize in that moment that I have no right to stand in his presence. No right at all. In fact, this is what happens. When he encounters Christ in all of his glory, he cannot help but fall at Jesus' feet in humility. He realizes that Jesus is truly Lord and that he is not worthy to be in his presence. Again, we look in Luke chapter 7, 1 through 10. Jesus commends the faith of a centurion who did not feel as though he was worthy enough to have Jesus to come under his roof. Remember that? You can look it up. But instead, he sent his servants to ask Jesus to say the words, Jesus, you're not worthy to come in my house. I'm sending my servants. But I know this, that, that if you just say the words, my servant will be healed. He didn't just acknowledge Jesus' power. I understand that. It wasn't just mentally a mental sin. He, he actually was humble. He was humble. And what did Jesus say? He healed his servant. But he doesn't just heal the servant. Jesus makes a comment. He says, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He commends his faith as well. We go to Luke 8, 40 through 48. We see Jesus heals a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She'd been bleeding for, for 12 years. She was again like the leper. She was ceremonially unclean. And at that point, she reaches out her hand to touch Jesus to be healed, to touch his garment. And when Jesus pointed out that she touched him, she falls on her face before Jesus, trembling. And Jesus commends her for her faith and says that her faith has saved her. You see, faith that Christ commends is a kind of faith that understands we don't deserve anything but the wrath of God. In fact, Rock of Ages, the hymn by Charles Wesley, third verse says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. 
Helpless, look to thee for grace. I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is a humble faith. A question for consideration, friends. When you look at your life, do you basically think that you deserve good things? Do you think that God owes you anything because of your lack of major sins? I.e., I've never murdered anybody, I've never robbed a bank, I'm not that bad, therefore I deserve good things. Or even perhaps, you might think, that you've suffered enough in life. My life has been so downtrodden, and so bad, and so full of suffering, that now God owes me the good life. Both are haughty postures before God. Are you living in a proud and haughty manner before God? If so, friends, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal Christ in all his glory and beauty to you in the scriptures, and that you would see just how unworthy you are to stand in his presence, but how gracious he is to invite repentant sinners to experience everlasting life with him. I don't, want you to, I, don't, I don't want you simply to look at the Bible and see how bad you are. You're bad. You're really bad. So am I. But he's so good. He's so merciful. I pray that you would see that his mercy far outshines your badness. That, he's, he, that he is quick to save. There is no one who comes to Christ for mercy that he rejects. No one. And I don't need to know your story. I can say that with full assurance because the Bible tells us when you come to him for grace, he gives grace. Fourth attribute of a faith that Christ commends is thankfulness, gratitude. We see that this man here who had been healed of leprosy, he's thankful. There was a deep gratitude in his heart for Jesus. A deep gratitude. It was authentic. Authentic gratitude. It was real. It was genuine. It was heartfelt. He knows that his biggest needs are met in Jesus Christ through no effort of his own. Notice that there's this deep emotion here. It's emotion. This isn't an academic exercise. There's gratitude in this man's heart. There's gratitude. And Jesus doesn't save us from our sins. And we respond with zero emotion. I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I've watched enough sports with this collective group. Many of you, you've been to my house. I've seen it. I know that you are an incredibly emotional group of people. I've seen videos of the Wolf family with, with when Georgia won the national championship. It's ecstatic. There's a video somewhere of, of Joseph and me standing next to each other as the Braves go to the World Series, super excited. I've seen, I've seen just how excited and proud uh, the McNon is of, of Matheson as, as, as his team's killing it. How proud he is when he hits a home run. I've seen it. All right? I've seen it. I've seen the pictures of the young ladies as they, as they go to the vintage market days and they, and they bring home the catch. I get it. We are an emotional people. So don't buy this fact that we're, I'm just not emotional. We're all emotional. We all have emotions. We all have feelings. When we all express them. And when Jesus saves a people from their sin and they truly trust in him, there is gratitude. There's emotion. We see this in Luke 7, 36 through 50. There's a, there's a woman who lived a life of incredibly deep and public sin. However, when she encounters Christ, she has a deep love and affection for him so much that she breaks down crying at his feet and begins to kiss him. And Jesus' disciples begin to chastise her and say, Jesus, don't you, do you not know who's kissing you? 
But Jesus says this, I tell you, her sins, which are many, they are forgiven. She had been forgiven of all her past. She had been given of all her struggles. She had been forgiven of all the wrong things that she did. She knew they were wrong. She knew she was guilty. She didn't make excuses for them, but she knew it when she encountered Christ that she was forgiven. Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she made the right intellectual argument. That's what it says. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for... For she gave money to the church. It's not what it says. Not intellectual scent. Not works. She, her sins are, which, well, they're many, they're forgiven, for she stopped having sex. It's not what it says. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. She loved Jesus. There was gratitude in her her heart for Jesus. Genuine gratitude. Authentic love for Christ. That is what faith looks like. And Jesus says, but he was forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say, among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This isn't a profound statement, but it is a convicting reality. The love, the lives of Christians should be marked by such gratitude and love towards Christ. That is what should mark our lives. Gratitude and love for Christ. Question for your consideration. Is your life right now characterized by gloom and despair? Mine has been lately. I imagine many of yours have as well. Maybe your life lately has been characterized by apathy towards God. Mine has lately. Perhaps yours has as well. Well, I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal Christ in all of his glory and beauty to you in the scriptures and that you would see that in spite of your sin, Christ has met your absolute greatest need. And that your heart, in the most authentic way possible, would respond in emotional gratitude to Christ. Friends, this thankful faith, this humble faith, this worshipful faith here that we see, this, this, this is the type of faith that Jesus commends. A repentant faith, a humble faith, a thankful faith, a worshipful faith. This is faith. When we use the word faith, this is what needs to be loaded in that word when we think of faith. Right here. Christ isn't looking to build a people who can simply recite book, chapter, verse, and and commit a few religious deeds each week. It's not what he's looking to build. If that were the case, Jesus would have commended the Pharisees. But he never once commends the Pharisees. They knew book, chapter, verse. They knew theology. They did the works. They, 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 they gave money. They did public prayers. They served. They did it all. And Jesus did nothing but chastise them. Why? Because they weren't humble. They did not worship the one true living God. They did not repent. They weren't thankful towards God. They were entitled. 
Instead, Jesus is building a people who love Christ with all of their hearts, soul, mind, and strength. That is what he's doing. And what's interesting here, of this man that Jesus commends, and he says that his faith has saved him, Jesus mentions that he was a Samaritan. This social outcast, the outcast in Israel. Israelites wouldn't associate with, with Samaritans, and Samaritans wouldn't associate with, with Jews. Yet, in the midst of that, the Samaritan trusts in Christ and he is saved. He is saved. Jesus is not looking for the cleanest, most well-respected people in the world to build his church. He's looking for people who love and treasure him. Amen. As Jesus finishes up, he, he questions, he says, we're not ten cleansed. I mean, I, I radically changed 10 people's lives today. One comes back. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner, this, this Samaritan? Don't, don't make the mistake here of somehow thinking that Jesus' feelings were hurt. You know, that Jesus did something nice and he's just sitting there like, well... I'm I am just struggling here because I did something kind and, and I did not get the, the thanks that I deserve. And Jesus wasn't standing there needy. Jesus is not a needy savior. And Jesus ain't just sitting on his bed just thinking about how sad he is that these people did not come back and thank him. He isn't a weak, high-maintenance Savior. He's strong, confident, and he's sovereign. He is in complete control of the situation, and all of Jesus' intentions always come to pass. Always. Yet, as we think about this right here, this is probably a good reminder, and I, it, I, I would be, they would be sad if I didn't remind us of this, this is probably a reminder that most of our ministry will not result in the praise or gratitude of men. You and I will never change someone's life as much as Jesus did that day. We don't have that power. And 90% of the people that Jesus healed in that moment didn't come back and thank him, didn't acknowledge him, didn't turn. They weren't thankful. They, weren't, they didn't work. None of it. We, we, don't, we don't do ministry for applause. We don't do ministry for, for gratitude or a pat on the back. My, you know, I know it's tempting. I know it's tempting. Oh, I serve this way. I serve that way. I serve this way. I serve that way. Great. That's kind of what it was getting at in last, Matt's sermon last week in, in Luke 17, 7 through 10. You're doing what you're supposed to. You don't deserve, you don't deserve an applause. We serve for one reason, and that is the glory of Jesus Christ. We can look at these nine ungrateful lepers. We can look at Israel, who God gave so much grace and mercy and generosity towards, but yet would constantly find themselves turning their back towards God time and time and time again. We can look at them and we can scoff at them because of their lack of gratitude towards God. We can look at these lepers and scoff at them because of their lack of gratitude towards Christ. Yet, if we're honest, our hearts are often dull and ungrateful towards the Lord. Is that you this morning? If it is, confess it. Don't pass it by because it's 11.51. Don't think about lunch. Don't think about what else you have to do today. As you think about this past week, this season that you're in right now, is it a season where your heart is dull 
and your heart is ungrateful towards God. Christian, may we remember the words to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, 2 through 7, with which we close this morning. Jesus says, I know your works, church at Ephesus. See what you're doing? Your toil and your patient endurance. You're working hard, doing the right things. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You're passionate about holiness and behavior. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You're passionate about doctrine. You got the right doctrine. You're calling out the right false teachers. You're doing it. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. They're even suffering. They're even suffering for the gospel. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. It's easy for a church like ours, a small church, where a lot of people feel like they're, 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 they're doing a lot. They're, they're serving in the nursery. They're serving in the kitchen. They're serving in the pulpit. They're teaching. They're, there's just a lot of work to be done and sometimes not enough hands. That We're busy. We're busy. We're fighting for the right doctrine. We're fighting for all the wrong things. And Jesus is in there saying, okay, that's great. Do you love me? It's easy to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. This morning, we must ask, Lord, have I grown dull? Has my heart grown ungrateful? Has my heart, am I in a season where I don't love you? Jesus says, remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. The works what? Love Jesus. I wouldn't ask him to do more. Love me. Repent. Confess that, friend, this morning. Confess your lack of gratitude towards the Lord. Confess your lack of humility towards the Lord. Confess your lack of love. Confess your lack of worship. Confess it to him. He is oh so quick to heal you. Oh so quick to forgive you. Oh so quick to have fellowship with you. May we seek, friends, to see Christ as he is, to worship him for who he is, and give thanks for what he has done for us. Amen. It is in this moment.